Hi folks, we're talking about mental health, ecological grief, and the climate crisis in this week's episode. For some listeners, that may be a difficult thing. I know for me, discussion of some of these subjects can wear me down and have a harmful impact on my mental health. So it's totally okay if you're not up for listening this week. I also want to remind you that there are a metric kabillion reasons to reach out and ask for help if you're struggling, be it as a researcher, an advocate, a parent, a student, or really anyone who's living on this planet right now. If you need help, please speak to your doctor, ask a pharmacist, talk to a local school counselor, make use of an employment assistance program, or just Google online intervention or local mental health services. The animals need you around, and frankly, so do I. Now let's get into this week's episode. We think that um, these feelings aren't likely to be unique to us. Um, there's many scientists working in places like this all over the world, feeling similar things. Uh, and so we thought that maybe it would be helpful to try and start the discussion around those issues. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is the Fender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Tim Gordon is an Exeter University PhD student working on some fascinating solutions to help fish on the coral reefs in Australia using sound. Now, as cool as this research is, that's not what brought Tim's work to my attention. It was a short letter published in the journal Science. Titled, Grieving Environmental Scientists Need Support, Gordon co-wrote the letter with colleagues Andrew Radford and Stephen Simpson. It is a call for cultural change in the scientific community. Researchers are witnessing the loss of ecosystems and species, something that can cause anyone to experience grief. But traditionally, scientists are considered impartial and dispassionate observers. This dissonance can be outright harmful, and Gordon and his colleagues believe the scientific community must begin discussing and addressing these problems, or as he puts it, allowing scientists to cry. Tim joined me all the way from the northeastern coast of Australia to share his views on the subject, his personal efforts to live with the heavy emotions he feels working on the Great Barrier Reef, and, because I was curious, how he's helping Nemo find his way home. I'd like to start with two questions. I'll ask them both first, and then we can get into both your paper and the work you're doing. Uh, sure. First question, uh, is climate change real? And second question, are people in some way responsible for it? Uh, yes, climate change is real, and yes, people are responsible for it. Excellent. So we don't have to talk any more about that and waste anyone's time, because I'm really tired of having to talk about that. Uh, (laughs) which brings us to the subject of this letter uh, that you wrote this paper I I absolutely loved it popped up on one of my feeds Um, I regularly talk about mental health for advocacy and it it never really sort of hit me the the impact that the kind of work and the, the the robustness of the work that folks like yourself who are studying uh, the environment and the degradation of environment on species uh, and by extension humanity, the, the weight that would carry. Uh, how did you decide uh, with your colleagues to, to, to write this paper? 
Well, th this was, um, it was a letter that we wrote actually after several years of thought um, and several years of experiencing this. This wasn't something that we sort of made a snap decision uh, based on a single event to write. It was a, a feeling that we'd been, um, that had been growing and that we'd been trying to work out ourselves uh, for some time. Um, we've done, I've personally have worked on the Great Barrier Reef um, for, for several months of the, of the year for, for the last four years. Um, my colleagues have worked in other places as well. Um, and in, in around the world, really, in the, in the places we study, we've seen this extreme degradation. Um, we've recorded it. Um, we've written about it. And it's, um, it's, it's sometimes not easy. Uh, and, and we, we think that um, these feelings aren't likely to be unique to us. Um, there's many scientists working in places like this all over the world, uh, feeling similar things. Uh, and so we thought that maybe it would be helpful to try and start a discussion around those issues. Well, and certainly I think whenever we talk about any kind of mental health, the, the conversation has to come first. And that's very, very often the hardest part. Uh, and I would I, I ask and again, without scientific background, um, I must rely on a little bit of stereotyping. But the conversation that scientists are supposed to be these purely objective observers who measure, evaluate, and report. And uh, there's a, a lovely quote from Charles Darwin that we can get into as well in your, your letter. But is mm -hmm. that what you were taught, you know, as, as a student um, and as an ongoing student? Is that the kind of attitude that you're presented with or is there more to it? it it's, a, it's a tricky position to hold. Um, it's a it's not quite a paradox, but it's um, there's there's definitely a sense in which you have to hold together the fact that, yes, objectivity is very important and scientists have to be able to maintain objectivity uh, to do good quality work um, uh, and to make sure that results are robust. Um, but at the same time, science requires a lot of creativity. Um, you have to design your experiments. You have to work out how we do these surveys. Uh, and to do that, you have to, your mind has to be working well. Um, you have to be you know, the, the, these these experiments are difficult to do. They're difficult to work out. Uh, the results are often difficult to interpret. Um, and you've got to be in a good headspace to, to be able to do that. Um, I think there's good evidence to show that if you're in a place that is not good mentally, then your, your ability to think straight, your ability to... Um, to come up with new ideas, uh, your ability to do good work is compromised. We all know that, right? When you feel rubbish, then you don't do you don't do good work. Um, and, and so, so there's a sense in which, whilst we have to stay objective, we also have to look out for our emotions uh, in in order to do that. It's I guess there's an analogy maybe to be drawn with medicine, right? Um, doctors see patients that are um, will cause them high levels of emotional distress. They see things that are very sad, um, and yet at the same time, they have to treat that patient. And so it's not okay for them to, um, you know, while, while they're in that moment there, while they're trying to treat the patient, they can't just dissolve into tears and collapse and, you know, say, oh, this is so sad, and what can we do? You know, they have to actually pull it together, and they have to, to use their brain, and they have to do something for that patient in that moment, right? It's kind of similar, I guess, with environmental science. Um, we have to work out how we deal with the emotions, but at the same time, we have to maintain some level of objectivity in order to do our work. 
It it is a at times what feels like an impossible balance. Um, my experience, I was a journalist for a long time, and I would sit with families whose children had recently died by suicide. And my job was to help them tell their story, right? Just to, to provide the information to their community, to provide resources to people. And I would sit again, and it's it's some of the most tragic conversations I've ever been a part of. And I couldn't break it. It would be unprofessional. It would not behoove the story. It would not behoove the family who was grieving. Uh, so I, I, it's not a parallel, but it's similar enough that I can appreciate, I think, the, the difficulty of that. And I think most people at some point in their life will come up against that, that moment where they have a job to do despite the devastating impact it has on their psyche or their emotions. Um, mm. Is that something that scientists are are in any way prepared for? Uh, I know like when I was in journalism school 20 years ago, it, it was something that wasn't really talked about uh, mm. and very much should have been. And I know, again, you know, with uh, friends who have been in medicine and pre-med programs, it's not often talked about or it wasn't often talked about. I, I certainly hope that's changing in that field. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's um, and I think one of the difficulties is that um, if we're not careful, then this need to to not break and to hold it together um, and to maintain um, the ability to do good work in the face of your emotions in the moment uh, might translate to, to all the time. And I, th I think that's a different thing. Um, so, I, so I think while it's necessary to, um, to sort of uh, be mentally strong and, and um, sort, of, sort of work work through and work despite the emotions in some moments, if you like, it, it's also necessary to, to take a step back in other moments uh, to, to give yourself a break um, to understand what these emotions are, to accept them, to, to take the time to work through them. Um, because otherwise I think we just get trapped by them. Um, you know, if, if, if this is something that is continuously, um, ignored and suppressed and we just basically pretend it's not there and we never give us, give ourselves any space or time to deal with it, then I think, uh, there's a real danger that it becomes, um, something that dominates and something that starts to, to affect the quality of the work we do. Absolutely. Uh, and I see that myself in my work and uh, I do it from afar. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I can't mm -hmm. imagine seeing the actual, you know, what is considered by many to be one of the most beautiful ecosystems on the planet. And you are measuring the, the loss of life and the loss of that mm -hmm. ecosystem on a regular basis. The, the, the grief you must hold on to as a result of that, recognizing not only what that individual loss of life means today, but what it can mean for the future as well is quite significant. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's the, that, that's often the key is, is the, the scale of it and the speed of it and the, the future uh, prognosis for these places um, is knowing, knowing actually that we aren't just measuring, uh, you know, a bad day in one place. Uh, we're, we're measuring uh, the the fastest and the most severe destruction of nature that's ever been seen in human history, um, and it's happening all over the world, uh, and it's happening at a rate which suggests that uh, at the moment uh, a slowing down or a turning around is very unlikely. Mm -hmm. 
Now, uh, you are working in a remote area, uh, I understand, and um, dealing with this daily surrounded by colleagues. What steps do you take or do other people you know take um, that do help with the coping and with the processing of all of this? I think positively for my colleagues and I, there's a real sense that we can support each other through this. Um, I think that's really important. Um, it's nice to be working with people who have the same experiences, who have been through the same and who are going through the same set of feelings in the work that they do. Um, and as we talk about that in a group, it's there's a real sense that um, that's a support network, um, that we can look out for each other, that we can empathize with each other, and that we can find things that do encourage each other uh, as we go through. Um, that tends to be uh, informal networks at the moment um, of friends and colleagues, and I think that's great, and I think that works really well. Um, but one of the reasons we wrote the letter was that we are concerned that for those who don't have those support networks in place, uh, I don't think there's um, the professional support networks that they might need to rely on. And it, it can be both difficult to find and to ask for help. Uh, and I will, whenever I talk about mental health issues, provide some links in the uh, uh, the show notes for the episode, and I'll do that again now. Um, but it, it is often very difficult to get that going. And I think this, this letter is so well written in both that it is very supportive of saying like the, your your concluding line i think is absolutely wonderful of to understand and find solutions for our increasingly damaged natural ecosystems environmental scientists must be allowed to cry and be supported as they move forward and that's a wonderful sentiment and extremely well written and what makes it even better is that you of course as a scientist uh, have all kinds of references attached to it um that really do show like this is not just you know, uh, young people feeling sad, which I think is an issue for uh, the millennial um, uh, generation, uh, is a bit of misunderstanding about some of that. And it's mm -hmm. difficult to talk about with some people. Um, mm -hmm. Now, when I, this is just a, a kind of a, a small tangent, but I'm curious, when you came across, or if you'd already read the quotes the, from Charles Darwin, uh, one who remains passive when overwhelmed with grief loses the best chance of recovering elasticity of mind. Uh, is that something that you had read previously, or is that something that you or your colleagues found in your, your preparation of this letter? That's something we found when we prepared the letter. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I, and I think there, there are a lot of examples like that which encouraged us in writing this letter because um, grief is something that we really know about as people. Yeah. It's a very human emotion. It's a very common emotion. I don't think there's almost anybody who goes through their life and at some point is not challenged by grief. Um, that can come in many different forms. You know, that can be when a loved one passes away. That can be when relationships break down. Um, and increasingly we're now seeing actually that that can be to do with the natural world. So, so these aren't new feelings, I don't think. Uh, and encouragingly, that means we don't particularly have to come up with some fantastic new solution for them. We already know about the feelings of grief and we already know about healthy ways of accepting those feelings, processing those feelings and moving through them. We just need to now apply that to an environmental context where we're seeing them in a new setting uh, for maybe maybe for the first time for some people. 
Yeah, and that's uh, a jarring experience, I think, when you realize, um, either for yourself or those around you, that, wow, this is something we need to address. Mm, um, mm. Which, again, I'm, comes I'm, back to that need for the conversation to take place. Yeah, and, and, and really that was our aim in writing the letter. None of the... It was myself and two colleagues who wrote who wrote this. Um, none of us are psychologists. Um, none of us are counsellors. None of us particularly know anything about grief beyond that which is, is our own personal experience. Um, but we felt it was a conversation that was important to start because it was something that we had been experiencing ourselves and that we knew that many others were experiencing. And actually, since we wrote the letter, we have been contacted by scientists from all over the world, many of whom we've never met before, to say, thank you for writing this, uh, to say these are, these are feelings that I have been struggling with as well, and I had no idea other people did, um, and to say thank you for starting this conversation. This is, um, this is something that I very much support. So that's been really encouraging and has been, a, um, yeah, that, that's been something that has really uh, encouraged us since we wrote that. I, I imagine so, and that's uh, I can say as someone who uses talk therapy um, to deal with a lot of stuff and has mental health issues that I've dealt with in my life, uh, hearing, nope, what you feel is normal, and I feel that way sometimes too, is sometimes the most powerful thing you can hear. Um, so thank you for you and your colleagues for writing this, uh, because it really does matter to talk about, especially, again, in a field where I think you're, you know, as I said, sort of culturally, at least expected to be dispassionate. Um, so it's I think it is very important. I I would like to learn a little more and I'd love to share this. We I, I wanted to talk to you about this letter you wrote and then I looked up your research and there's a wonderful video that you you had about a thesis you worked on. And I think it's just a very cool thought. Uh and what you're looking at. It's not something I'd ever heard before. I'd heard about it kind of with mammals, but more in a coexistence point of view. So if I could just ask generally about the kind of work you're doing right now um, and how solution focused I think it is too, is kind of cool uh, in terms of noise uh, and fish. Sure, sure. So I work on coral reefs mainly and I work on the sound of coral reefs. Uh, so we use underwater microphones to listen in to all of the different uh, pops and chirps and scrapes and chatters and snaps that you hear on a healthy coral reef ecosystem. Um, our ears don't work brilliantly underwater, um, so a lot of people have the um, misconception that, uh, that that the sea is a very silent place, that the underwater is the silent world, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, healthy coral reefs are very noisy places indeed. Um, that changes as those reefs degrade, um, as the animals die or move away. Uh, the sounds that you hear on a reef become quieter and less complex. There are, there are fewer animal noises. Um, and actually, that's very important for the functioning of the reef. And that's because uh, little baby fish that spend the first few weeks of their life out in the open sea, uh, they find reefs and they navigate towards reefs and they find somewhere to live by listening. Sound travels really well underwater, so they can listen in for the sound of a healthy reef a long way away, uh, and they come in and they choose to settle based on the sound of the reef. Um, we're finding, and um, we, we are concerned that as degraded reefs sound 
uh, quieter, as they sound less complex. They also sound less attractive to baby fish. And there's a, there's a danger perhaps there that the next generation of fish will not settle onto the reef and that will exacerbate that degradation. Put positively, there is then also an opportunity that if we can restore the soundscape of a reef, if we can bring back some of those noises locally, um, then maybe we can bring back the attractiveness. We can call the fish back in and they can start to kickstart recovery again. So it's really by, by trying to understand in more detail the exact mechanisms of how these places are changing, what's going on and what's driving those changes, then we can start to unpick you know, the, the steps in the chain and start to work out how we can then start to work backwards along those steps to try and force some sort of recovery of these ecosystems. I think that it just sounds so brilliant. And again, my my time is spent almost entirely reading about uh, terrestrial mammals. Um, so it's very often a physical related issue, right? We're looking at physical barriers, wildlife corridors, um, how human development is impacting such corridors and travel, uh, how roadways impact these things. Uh, in Canada, mm -hmm. we've got huge issues with resource exploitation, changing landscapes, thus changing predator-prey relationships. And the, the idea, though, that you can use sound um, to almost help repair an ecosystem is just fascinating to me. I think it is so cool. I don't understand any of it, but I think it's really cool. <laughs> and it reminds me of a book I actually have on my bookshelf by Christopher Moore called Fluke, or I Know Why the Whales Sing, um, for fiction oh, nice. lovers out there. Um, it is extremely silly, but a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> so I guess I, I, I'm not going to hold on to you for too long. You are literally on the other side of the world and starting your day as I'm ending my day. Um, and I, I guess what I'd like to end on is what message would you like to send out to people? And the the letter you've written with your colleagues is wonderful. And I think I'm going to share it everywhere. But in, if you could succinctly send out sort of one thought to conclude on, what would you want to say? I think it's important to understand that our emotional responses to the environmental change we see around us are entirely normal and entirely expected and entirely healthy. Uh, what is important isn't that we get worried about having these responses, that we get worried because we feel sad about the environment. What's important is how we deal with those feelings, how we use them and how we process them. Because if we try and ignore and suppress grief, then it can become something that traps us. Uh, but if we process it properly, if we talk about it, if we accept it, and we, if we use it as motivation, it can be something that galvanizes us and kicks us forward and helps us to find a way into a better future. I want to sincerely thank Tim for joining the podcast. Arranging our schedules was tricky for someone with a loose grip on mathematics like me, we ended up speaking at 6.30 a.m. Thursday in Australia, which was 5.30 p.m. the day before here in Hamilton. Links to the paper published in the journal Science, as well as a video explaining some of Tim's work and his other research are available on this week's show notes and at thefurbears.com. I also personally need to thank Tim and his colleagues for taking the brave step of challenging the status quo in their industry to help so many others managing mental health concerns. I also want to thank all of you for joining us. These are hard subjects to discuss sometimes, and asking for help can be even harder. 
To all of you who have written notes about your struggles and messages of support for me and others, thank you. Remember, we're all in this together, and help is always available. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. 